Yeah, that's the best way to like start building your race car, I think. Just starting yeah. from like a free shell. Mm -hmm. Or something that runs well enough and is just somehow dirt cheap. And it's like, it really doesn't matter if your car is a salvage title if it's going to be a race car at all. <laughs> Correct, yeah. And then you don't have to worry about bushings or like bad ball joints and control arms because when you're building a car for the track anyways, you replace those parts. Yep. Welcome everybody. Thank you for joining us at the Heel Toe Podcast. We will be discussing car-related topics as well as career-related topics on this podcast. My name is Ryan. And I'm Andrew. And uh, on this episode, our very first episode of Heel Toe, we will be basically interviewing Andrew and kind of going into his background on how he got involved with cars, uh, what got him into track days, and what he drives, as well as what he does for work and education. Um, sound good? Yep, sounds good. Cool. All right, let's get started. So, um, you and I met at Gingerman Raceway in 2021 or 2020? 21. Okay, 21. It must have been early 21. It was, yeah. uh, yeah, like early August, I remember, because I had just moved out to Michigan, and I decided to do a track night in America, like an SECA track night in America, right before my school season started. So okay. that was the only one that was available, so I drove my way out with my e36 and my chevy colorado at the time and just uh learned gingerman that day yeah same here i didn't realize that was your first time there too yeah um yeah track night i i no it couldn't have been it couldn't have was it august it was august for sure because i know school starts in september but like my like my orientation week was like the last week or week and a half of August. Okay. So it was probably early or mid August. Yeah, you know, I'm sure you're I'm sure you're right here because <laughs> it just seems so fast to like you know, I was kind of doing everything I could for Revmatch at the time and I'm like I need to host a track day but I'd never driven Gingerman yet. <laughs> <laughs> but um it was so it, i had a great time meeting you because it was kind of cool to see you know i have the e46 silver sedan it's like top <laughs> and you have the e36 328i and it looks so similar um and then you know i liked your driving style on track and you know we both yeah. learned the track together and then ended up instructing there like two months later <laughs> yeah i also thought it was really funny because you saw your car with the california plate and then my car with the new jersey plate just like out in michigan randomly yeah that's true too <laughs> yeah that's cool though um so yeah tell what what initially got you into cars like think back as far as you can like what what was your first you know spark of interest do you remember at all I mean, I played with a lot of Hot Wheels back when I was a kid, but I think it was early on in probably like 
middle school or so that my parents got me like a magazine, a sports compact car magazine. And that was when I was like interested in like, okay, this is the early 2000s period. They're always talking about these 90s vehicles that are like now becoming affordable in the 2000s that you can get as your first car. And then in there, they also talked about like different ways of grassroots motorsports and how you can get into it. And I believe it was autocross was definitely in one of those articles. And at that time, I was just thinking of like all sorts of different tuner vehicles that I could prob- probably get when I was in high school and just start get- getting my permit or driver's license. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um yeah, I definitely had some similar experiences to kind of like with I kind of started with like road and track and car and driver, um, maybe some motor trend, although I don't remember that one as much for some reason. Um, and of course, like Super Street and stuff. <laughs> yeah, but I, I never got into Super Street, but I have a lot of sport compacts car. I think it might have been the same publisher, though. Yeah, Maybe. I'm not sure. I'm not as familiar with all that stuff. Um, But I know I've heard things like, you know, a lot of the magazines did have the same publishers, which is also like why Road and Track and Car and Driver tended to have like the same content. (laughs) It seemed like at least. Um, But um, I also remember feeling like some of the uh cover photos for like super street were a little too uh racy for me <laughs> not in the race car way uh but i knew i couldn't like ask my parents for that magazine <laughs> because of yeah. the yeah, models on really the... like the fast and furious time frame too yeah <laughs> so um so what was your maybe we should just ask you like what what was your first car are we talking about like the hand-me-down car from my parents, or like the first car I bought with my own money? Um, either, both. Uh, sure. So, my parents—they just kind of—they got their first BMW back in '03, and they just kind of liked those BMWs, so they bought another one, and then they didn't buy anything for like eight years down the road, so. In 2011 or so, when I was getting my driver's license, they handed me the keys to their old 2003 BMW X5. And it was automatic, it was the six-cylinder, but that thing weighed like 4,500 pounds, so it wasn't sporty, it wasn't fast, it was just kind of a very boring, like, A to B car. Um, Yeah, at least it was BMW, though. Yeah, so it it drove decently for an SUV, of course, but... I always like wanted something more and I definitely wanted to get something with a manual transmission. Um so no nobody in my family also knew how to drive a manual transmission. So at that time I worked at a deal with my parents where if I did real well with my standardized testing scores, did real well in school, they would lease me uh like a cheap vehicle of my choosing with a manual transmission so I could learn how to drive a manual. And so that ended up being a Subaru Impreza, just like a base model Subaru Impreza uh, with a manual. And I think I had that for about five months. And it actually turned out to be a lemon. So that went right back to Subaru. They refunded my parents all their lease payments. So the only thing that cost them was like fuel. So 
we got really lucky there. And then by that time, I knew how to drive a manual transmission. Since I knew it was a lease, I was practicing like heel toe, double clutching, and also clutchless shifting. So like if I would find <laughs> gear, I didn't care because I knew that thing was going to go back in three years. Wow. So that's, yeah, that's crazy. That was how I learned how to like drive a manual. And then since I had no regard for the lease, I really kind of just learned everything about driving a manual in that sense. Nice. Basically just a free car to abuse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that ended up being super lucky. And then from that, uh, my parents got me a 2000 BMW M5. And this was all within the span of like a year and a half, my junior and senior year in high school. Wow. So I had a 2000 BMW M5 in 2012. That's pretty badass. It was really badass. And back in 2012 or so, that's when the M5s, the E39 body style, hit rock bottom pricing. So I had like a low mileage, 120,000 mile vehicle. Mm -hmm. uh, two owners, no accidents, no rust. Um, and I got that thing for 10 grand. Or my parents got it for 10 grand. And I, they were completely fine having me drive that thing around. Wow. I wish so, yeah. my parents had done that. <laughs> yeah, so it was a sweet deal. Yeah, um, for sure. I always felt a little bit guilty because it was still 10000 bucks, which still is a good amount of money back then. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was just kind of driving around. I kept it in really good shape, but they wouldn't let me take it off to college. So that freshman year, I was like, man, I it's kind of nice that way because I probably would have like definitely destroyed it with all like my friends jumping in and out of the car because that thing was pristine. Mm -hmm. um but then also in like 2013 2014 period is when the prices of the z39 m5 started to rise again okay so me thinking about it i worked out a deal with my parents and said that hey if i sell this can i keep whatever money i make on top of what you've put into this vehicle so far mm -hmm. so in i think 2014 period we sold it for seventeen thousand dollars Nice. And obviously we didn't keep, I didn't get an extra seven grand because like my parents had to put like an extra four or five grand just to like keep it running. Mm -hmm. But I still like ended up pocketing like, like two and a half grand out of it. So that's when I started like my first like bank, like little slush fund for my cars and like play cars. And then from that M5, I've just like, from that M5 and all those summer jobs, I started uh, just buying all the cars here myself. Okay. So, you started off with a X3, right? Five. X5, then yep. moved on to an M5 E39. Why did you get rid of it? Uh, so, basically, it was way too nice of a vehicle, and those cars take a lot of money to keep maintained. And I also wanted to start autocrossing, and I did a couple in the M5, and I realized it's not the most agile vehicle mm. because of how big it is. So I decided that I really wanted, like, an E36 of some sort, or an E46. Something slick top, lighter, and a lot cheaper to run. Right. Um. So yeah, with the sale of that M5 though, and then with all my summer job money, I ended up with a E36 318Ti, so the hatchback version with the four-cylinder, and it was also a slick top. Kind of like a rare find, but it was 
still ultimately a 318. Huh. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's an interesting choice. I'm kind of surprised that you chose one. What? I mean, why not go for like a 325? I, it was just because, you know, cost? Uh, availability at that time. So I was just looking in that New Jersey area. And I just couldn't find anything that was pretty rust-free and in a manual transmission and in a good, like, spec. And then this 318 comes along. It was a sport package car. Um, it was, like, an early M44 model, so it didn't have a lot of these emissions things. So, like, nothing could possibly go wrong. And it was a slick top. So I figured, yeah, let me go for it. So how did you like it? Uh, I put on some lowering springs on the car. Uh, it was the first one that I really like started doing modifications to. But ultimately, it was very, very, very slow. It got me great gas mileage, though. I would put 89 in that thing, like, bomb down the highway at 80 miles an hour, and I'd still get, like, mid-30s. Wow. So for that car, it was great. But eventually... Um, I still wanted something more competitive for autocross because that 318 lacked power because it was still classed with the E36 325s and 328s. So it was just a losing proposition all around, but it was the... So I just had to find something else. Um, I was able to find a Ford Focus. It was a ZX5, first-gen Focus ZX5 with the 2.3 Duratec. So it was like the big block motor. Um, Bought it for really cheap. It was like twelve hundred bucks. Flipped it for I think twenty four hundred bucks, and then a couple months later, I found a three twenty eight slick top, and that's the one I still have now. Nice. All right. Does that kind of wrap up your whole experience of all the cars you've had? No. So I think right now I am on like car number eleven. Oh. So it went that 318, the Ford Focus, to the 328 slick top. And that car number three is one that I've kept for the longest time. Mm-hmm. Then I bought a W124, I believe, uh, Mercedes E320. It was a 95 model, and that's the one where they had the biodegradable wiring harnesses. <laughs> but I also bought that with 99,000 miles for 1600 bucks. Funny story, I found it on Craigslist when I was in college in St. Louis, and it was back home in New Jersey. So I told my parents, hey, you have, I told my dad, your budget is 1800 bucks for this vehicle. Just haggle and see what you can get it for. And my dad calls me like a couple hours later and goes, yeah, I got it for 1600 bucks. So I'm like, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> um, so that was my winter beater, but I really didn't want it to crest 100,000 miles. So then later that winter, uh, once I had to go back to St. Louis for school again, I put it up for sale, and I think I got like 2400 out of it. So, again, small flip, quick flip, but I got a little bit of money out of that. Yeah. Um, after that, Mercedes, I think I went on a Chevy spree. So I bought a 2000 Tahoe, great vehicle, drove it for a year, and sold it for what I had into it. Then I got a... Uh, uh 09 cobalt ss turbo it was a sedan i think it was like one of like 200 cobalt ss sedans in white so that was a pretty rare vehicle drove it for a bunch of miles um and then 
I had a really long commute and I didn't want to trust a 160,000 mile Cobalt SS to do it. Mm. So I sold that thing to a fellow autocrosser out in Colorado. That guy still drove it or still is driving it right now. And he takes it to some track days and some autocrosses. So that's really nice to see. Mm -hmm. And I bought a, and then I went up to a Chevy Colorado with the Duramax diesel motor. Um, Again, I had a really long commute. It was an hour-ish each way, 110 miles round trip a day. So I put 30,000 miles on that thing in one year. Then COVID hit, and uh, I basically stopped driving it. Wait, why was your, um, where were you driving to and from? So I was living in Delaware at the time because I worked at Mishimoto, and uh, that's why I moved down to Delaware. Then I quit Mishimoto, found a new job in uh Pensacola, New Jersey, so right by Camden, and didn't move out of Delaware at that time, so I was just doing a long commute. Wow, that's a that's a far commute. It was. I listened to a lot of podcasts, so I got into the Slip by Angle podcast at that point, mm-hmm. and also like How to Money and a bunch of other ones, and that's kind of how I wanted to start podcasting myself. So, mm, got it, man. I just, I was just thinking about that W124 Mercedes. Is that a car you actually wanted or you just saw it was a good opportunity to flip? Um, I wanted just like quirky cars. Okay. So that one came up because it was such low mileage. It was the second owner, but the original owner was like the father of the woman that sold it to my dad and me technically. Um, and this was a 95 special edition one too. So I had like the special edition wheels. So it was a neat, quirky car. Yeah. I mean, I know there's definitely a following for that, like, especially that like era of Mercedes and the boxiness. And um, like, I think, you know, it was Jason Camisa has a video on like how it's like the perfect sedan, the most perfect sedan ever or something. <laughs> <laughs> which yep, yeah. I you know I like them but I don't think that <laughs> I don't think they're the world's most perfect sedan um but that's fine well they're built really really well so like when I had it, I mean, the door shut aside from the fact there. that like the heart the wiring harness disintegrates <laughs> like yeah. you can always buy like they made a bunch of like repair harnesses afterwards so you can always find a repair harness and it's like a three-hour job to swap the harness mm. plus the w124 that chassis is like where the like the chrysler 300c and the dodge challenger and the dodge chargers are based off of now mm. like all your hellcats are like somehow their roots stem from that w124 <laughs> so obviously that chassis still works and it's still like used in modern vehicles yeah i mean i guess that really is quite impressive considering it's like a 30 year old chassis <laughs> yeah and it's probably like 40 years old by the time it's actually like been developed to when it's like still being made now yeah that's pretty crazy that's cool though yeah, yeah. um i mean i personally think an e46 is the world's most perfect sedan but i'm just saying <laughs> Yeah, but then the subframe tears out, and you gotta like spend many, many hours reinforcing the body. Oh, otherwise, yeah. it's gonna work. Well, not in the two thousand four. 
models, supposedly. <laughs> supposedly, but I'm sure once I like tear into my car, the ZHP, mm. I will find cracks on it anyways. Mm. So I don't think it's really okay in any form. I don't know. I mean, I think we've talked about this before, but supposedly, you know, all the followers of the E46 believe that BMW, like, changed the way they built them and maybe reinforced them or made, you know, got their steel from somewhere else. I don't know what the change was, but supposedly 2004 E46s don't have the issue, but they weren't going to publicly address that they fixed anything because then they would admit that the rest of them had an issue. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are, I remember reading, I think CMP Engineering has like a document showing the differences between like the early E46s and then the old form plus E46s where they have like additional spot welds internally mm. to like prevent that from happening. But CMP Engineering also admits that like those ones still have cracking. It's just they crack in a different place now and it's less prominent in the sense that like the whole subframe like thread pu doesn't pull out of the chassis it just cracks the chassis in other places mm. yeah i just think the e46 looks very good <laughs> yeah. by. i still think the one like the 128 the e82 128s which is also a car that i had at one point um those are like a really solid uh successor to the e46 and also the e36 because size wise they're really similar mm. power wise it's like the same output as an e36 m3 except my friend who's tracking and like run, running his 128 for time trials really hard now is coming into other issues such as oil temperature issues and then rev matching issues because mm. the drive-by wire throttle just doesn't like it when you really like do a hard heel toe downshift. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's really no perfect BMW, I think. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I guess there kind of isn't, um, at least not one that I've drove, I've driven, but, uh, I did get a chance to drive a G80. Um, yeah, G80. Dan's yeah, Dan's, uh, M M3. It's a four. Is it a four? He's, yeah, he's got a it is an M four. Yeah, and it's like it drove. It, it's it's like I feel like it's not even related to like a E forty six at all. Like I don't know. It's just obviously it's still a three series, but it doesn't feel like the same kind of experience at all. You know, just because it has so much power and so much more technology, like. The rev, like I've never been in a car that has that kind of rev matching, where it just automatically rev matches for you, and he has this like ridiculous shifter where it's like literally the shifting is like not even an inch away from each like gate. It's like so weird. Like, is it super notchy being such a short gate? It is. It's very notchy. Um, okay, I kind of hate that. I don't mind it so far it's just like it's 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 crazy and you know i i accidentally i was coming i was at gingerman in it uh going down turn uh, you know the straight from 10 to 11 turn 10 to 11 
And uh, unlike my second or third lap, I accidentally put it into... I think it was... I don't remember how I misshifted it, because it's like such a tiny amount of movement. It's ridiculous, but... Well, that's why I'm always afraid of those tiny gates. Because like, I don't know if I'm in third or first because of how close they are yeah or even like <laughs> or even like fifth and first but i think maybe that's what it was maybe i like I somehow got it into first instead of third that would make sense i think and i was so afraid that i was overriving the engine because i because it like tries to rev match no matter what gear you're going into and of course going into first it's going to like max out its rpm range and I was so afraid for like the next lap to drive it. I'm like, I'm not gonna be able to afford to replace this. <laughs> like, and just... Did Dan know that you misshifted his car? Oh yeah, he was in the passenger seat. I mean, I didn't actually. I don't think I actually misshifted it. I just put it in first, and I didn't let out the clutch enough to over rev it. It was just it maxed out the RPMs in attempt to rev match. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, I mean. Going back to a perfect BMW, I have no idea, but um, not crazy about the, you know, about the grill on that thing. But after driving it, I definitely like it a lot more, you know, considering I understand what it can do now. Um, yeah. But yeah. I mean, capabilities of all new cars are just kind of getting crazy. They really are. And the uh, 128i you just mentioned, um, one of my friends back in California had a 135i, as well as the M2 Competition. Um, and I just can't quite get over the look of the headlights of that one series. I just think they're a little too blobby. <laughs> um, but that's just me. They're definitely goofy-looking cars, um, but... Like, they drove very, very well. And when you're sitting in the driver's seat, you're not looking at the outside, so it's passable. Very true. That's very true. <laughs> I um, I mean, it was the 135i, was, it was quick. It was fast. It's nimble. It's small, you know. Yeah, the N54 and N55 motors on them, they're, like, pretty reliable and easy to get power out of. Um, but you really got to keep up on, like, oil leaks and stuff. Otherwise, they'll self-destruct, yeah. like the one I have. <laughs> yeah because you had what which x6 or something yeah I, and i still have it it's just sitting in a storage lot right now oh really have you decided what you're gonna yeah. do with it uh i want to get it running and then probably just drive it straight to carmax and take whatever offer that they give me <laughs> fair enough <laughs> yeah well yeah it's too bad we're not like at the peak of you know, values of used cars anymore, but yeah, that's true. Yeah. But like, I don't. I think I'd have a really hard time selling that thing, anyways, because nobody's really looking for an X6. Yeah, they're kind of a weird car. Um, yeah, but... I think like it's nice if you want quirky cars. Like I usually have quirky cars, mm -hmm. but again, it's a very dumb vehicle because it's all of. All of the X5 without the storage or the cargo capacity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like, what's the point? Like, you just have this giant car that can't carry as much stuff. Yeah. It towed really well. It got really good fuel mileage, but mm. it might have been because the engine was 
ready to self-destruct at some point. <laughs> I would think it was um, just because, I don't know, maybe that's the purpose of it. It's more aerodynamic because, you know, it's more sleek in the back. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Because, like, so coming back from Putnam Park to Ohio, which is a fairly flat tow, I got 17 miles per gallon in that tank. Hmm. That's pretty good for a gasoline car. Yeah, that, that like, nearly rivals the eco-diesel that I have. Yeah. True, especially when you consider how much, you know, how much more diesel fuel is. Yeah. Um, like, when I was coming from uh, New Jersey to Michigan with the ZHB in tow, I only got 19. And, that, like, that's through a lot of, like, Pennsylvania hills. Hmm. But still, very disappointed. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I don't know. Maybe you just need a tune or something. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know what's going on. Like, I see people, like, say, yeah, I can nail down, like, 22 miles per gallon all day long while towing. Mm -hmm. And, like, I'm struggling to get 20 in that thing. Yeah, I don't know what the case was when I drove all the way from California, but I definitely averaged, like, over 20 miles per gallon, I'm pretty sure. Um, All the way from out there. Maybe it was the wind. <laughs> Maybe it was... I have no idea. I'm still convinced my Colorado got better mileage. Like, I think my Colorado could do like one mile per gallon better on average than the Eco Diesel at all times. Wow, but it wasn't as nice. No, it definitely wasn't as nice. Yeah, that's what I like about mine. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I wish it. I still wish mine had like Lane Keep and Android Auto. Those are the only two things that I'm really missing. Mm, yeah, honestly though, I think I've told you this, but I really don't like and or not Android Auto, but Apple Maps or not Apple Maps, Apple CarPlay. Um, just because it's really annoying with Google Maps that I can't like. I like to compare my routes, you know, while I'm driving, which you know might not be the safest thing in the world, but you know you can still do it through the interface, but it takes like five more steps and it's so annoying that i end up just like disconnecting my phone just so i can like use regular google maps on my phone my iphone because it locks you out when you're connected with a cord like you can only see on your phone like step by step and it's hard to compare separate routes on the interface it's really frustrating but interesting yeah i know on android auto you can do it pretty easily like, there's just, like, alternate routes button, you press it, and then you see, like, A, B, and C, different mileage, and the additional time added. Yeah, like, with Apple Maps, it's, like, you click on the little alternate routes button, and then it, like, shows you, at, like, three different options, like, on the map, kind of, but it doesn't show you, like, first of all, the name of each route is, like, only like 10 characters long, so it doesn't really mean anything meaningful to be like, you know, Highway 10 or whatever, and then it's all cut off. And then it doesn't show you on that screen the time difference or the, you know, mileage difference. <laughs> so it's like, it's so frustrating. I can't believe they haven't fixed that or changed it. But I feel like that, that would be an update that they'd get to eventually. And then it would be less frustrating, and then CarPlay would be pretty useful again. Yeah, I mean, hopefully eventually someday. But it's like, it's been years. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I haven't had an iPhone in years, so I wouldn't really know. Yeah. But I didn't really have that complaint when I did have my iPhone back with the Colorado. Mm-hmm. I feel like they might have actually updated it to make it like more difficult. Like, not on purpose. I don't know. Doesn't matter. <laughs> it's, it's not really that important, but it's just a complaint I always have. And I always want to like write to them and be like, hey, like, can you please fix this so I don't have to unplug my phone to use maps the way I want? Or maybe they do it so that I stop using Google Maps and I switch to Apple Maps. That could be. Yeah, that seems more likely. Yeah, which is very evil. <laughs> Whatever. Anyway, um, yeah, you mentioned your Cobalt SS2, which my first car was a Cobalt LS, <laughs> which is not even like in the same category in my mind of a SS, but it, you know, um, didn't like mine for very long, but I definitely have, will have a soft spot for Cobalt SSs for a long time. Yeah, like, I don't know what the similarities would be. Like, you probably have the same dashboard as I did. Yeah, that's probably very true. Which wasn't the worst thing in the world, I didn't think. I mean, it, no, it like everything. It felt like an economy car, and then like the steering wheel was taken out of a C6 Corvette. Mm-hmm. The seat, the seats were. I didn't have the Recaro versions because that came to like the previous years, the supercharged ones. But they were still very nicely bolstered with suede inserts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then it had a limited slip and a turbo, so like that thing was insanely fun. Yeah. Plus, like, I don't know why people ignored or didn't notice the Nurburgring time in that car was, like, faster than a E46 M3, wasn't it? Yeah, I don't, I don't know what it was, but I know it was quick. It was, like, deadly quick. Yeah, and it's, like, I, like, I have it in my head. I, I'm pretty sure it was, like, 8 minutes and 22 seconds, and, uh... E46 M3 does it like in 8 minutes and 30 something seconds. Something like that. And it's like that's impressive. Why don't people respect this car? I didn't I never understood. Yeah, but, but like the worst part is GM's timing cuz this it came the turbo model came out in 2008 and we all knew the economy tanked in 2008. Mm. So like it's possible that nobody was really buying performance vehicles at that point. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure I heard more recently that it was like um, it wasn't. There wasn't any reason why they switched from supercharger to turbo, other than they lost a deal with Eaton, I think, or they it just expired. Whatever contract they had with Eaton Superchargers. Um, I don't know if you know anything about that, but I I I do not know the story about that, but that's interesting because yeah. like they improved that vehicle from superchargers to turbochargers so much mm-hmm. that like when you want a cobalt ss you want the turbo one you don't want a supercharged one unless you want to modify the hell out of a supercharged one yeah that's what i've heard too is like technically the supercharged blocks are stronger for their pistons and rods but like the suspension differences with the turbo one like it's mm-hmm. got different knuckles i don't know if the rear beam is different but like the knuckles are definitely different you can slot the struts from the factory, and you can get, like, two and a half degrees of camber on them. Yeah. So, like, it's a potent vehicle where, like, just out-of-the-box stock. Get some good track day brake pads, get some good tires on it, and then slot your front struts. 
if you're gonna beat up on some BMWs at a track day, even now. Yeah, like E46 M3s. <laughs> yeah. Out of the box. The one thing I hated about it, it had a weird wheel bolt pattern, yeah. and I didn't want to buy wheels for that thing because I knew this car probably wasn't something I'd keep forever. And then I had a track car, which was my E36. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and speaking of you know weird bolt patterns and stuff, I had a Saab 93. Same bolt pattern. Yeah, same bolt pattern. I've heard, I think it shared a chassis with, like, some Saturn or something. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, Ecotech block taken by Saab to be upgraded and tuned with a turbo. Um, but it wasn't really the same setup at all as the Cobalt SS, as far as I'm aware. Um like, I'm sure there was some like information sharing because like I've heard like whispers or like possibly on a forum thread here and there that the LNF block out of the Cobalt SS is like a derivative of that Saab Ecotech. Yeah, I mean, I think the I wouldn't be surprised if it's like the same internals, but just like different tuning or something and different like actual turbocharger uh, model. Um from I'm, I I don't know what was in the uh, what was in the uh, Cobalt SS, but the Sobs came with two. The little T was like a Garrett 1752 or something, and the big capital T is a uh, TDO4 variant um, from Mitsubishi. But uh, yeah, yeah, I got no clue about my Cobalt. I had no intentions of modifying that Cobalt. I love the way it drove stock. <laughs> And they're great deals right now if you can find one, but they're not always in great shape. <laughs> oh, I got my Cobalt SS for $2,900. Bucks. Hmm. Original wow. owner. Original owner, one accident. The dude sent me a picture of the accident. So it was a solid deal also. Wow. I sold it for, uh, I think I sold it for like $5,500, no. which was still more than what i had into it and i gave it and it was a deal for that guy from california the autocrosser i sold it to wow that's crazy how many miles when he bought it uh fairly high i think it was like at 150 and i sold it at like 160 mm. something yeah that's pretty high up there but still you know it's funny like that you <laughs> like I, I i'm learning you know more details about the cars you've had and it comes across my mind kind of frequently now that it's like, well, you know what? I'm probably not going to be able to afford like a bunch of cars in awesome condition with low miles in my lifetime at the same time, at least. But you can find super high miles cars, <laughs> uh, super high mileage cars that you really like for pretty cheap. Like I remember back in California, like a year before, uh, maybe a year or less before I bought my E46, um, one of my friends kind of had this kind of clapped AP1S2000, and he was like, I'll sell, sell it to you for like $6,000. <laughs> and I was like... Oh, you should have done that. I really should have, probably. But it was pretty rough. Like, Like, I think... Both of the fenders above the wheels had, like, paint missing because it was slammed, I think. And, like, the rubbing against the 
bottom of the fender somehow like pushed up the paint and like made it disintegrate on top and it was rough it was a really rough example but still it's like i don't think you'll ever come across an s2000 that has so low of mile or sorry that is that cheap regardless of how many miles that's on it again um it's just you know yeah that's the old world I think like a lot of my car purchases are just cars of opportunity like the price is really cheap that i could afford it at this time and i'm never gonna have like a giant garage that i'm gonna be able to keep all these mint condition cars mm -hmm. so i buy these cars to drive them and have fun with them and once i feel like i've got my money's worth out of them i let them go yeah that makes sense yeah so like that focus that e320 my cobalt ss the 128 those were just cars of opportunity where I came across them for really cheap. I'd be like, hey, this would be a fun car to learn about, play around with for a couple months or a year, and then let them go. Yeah. And I haven't lost any money on any of those cars. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those opportunities were kind of lost for like a couple of years while those prices spiked, but I feel like they're starting to come back a little bit. Like, yeah. I'm seeing a few well, more deals that are like, maybe worth it now you just got to be ready to jump on them like i bought my zhp peak covid it was 2021 when i bought it so like i think it was april 2021 right before i left philadelphia to go to michigan okay and like i was literally at work working from home searching facebook marketplace and it just popped up hmm. and i for like a second, I thought it was a scam, but then I just decided to message the dude. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, no, it's available. Do you want to come see it? And it was like two miles away from me in Philadelphia. So I just went out and saw it well, and then decided it was good enough to buy. What was the, do you want to share what the price and mileage was? Uh, $2,000. Oh my God. 223,000 miles. Wow. That is up there. <laughs> genuine. Uh, E46, 330 ZHP. Wow. I mean, that's a lot of miles, but that is dirt cheap. Because yeah. I bought my... I just sold the wheels for 400 bucks. Wow. Yeah. So, like, I'm pretty sure I can make... I can sell the interior. Mm -hmm. It has the Alcantara interior with the cloth inserts. I'm pretty sure I can sell that, the door panels, and the carbon trim for, like, seven, 800 bucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's a lot that I can make my money back on with this car. Yeah, like the seats themselves are easy to take out and sell. Yeah, um, it has a BAV audio sound system. So it has the tweeters, the speakers too. Mm -hmm. And that I looked up is like a couple hundred bucks mm -hmm. of an upgrade. So I can probably get like two, three hundred bucks just for the speakers themselves. Yeah, <laughs> you're like describing my my purchase almost completely. Uh, with my E46, because I bought that um, out in California. Mine was non-ZHP, of course, um, but slick top, manual six-speed, 120, no, not even, like 100,000 miles or something. And uh, it had a salvage title, but everything has worked and has continued to work till this day and beyond, knock on wood. Um, and I bought it for two grand. 
and uh, I sold the Harman Kardon uh, sound system. I sold the seats. I sold some of the trim pieces, uh, some of the door cards. Um, and it's not like I, I'm pretty sure I made back pretty much almost all of the money that I spent to purchase the car by selling the pieces of it. So, not a bad deal. Yeah, that's the best way to like start building your race car, I think. Yeah. Just starting from like a free shell. Mm-hmm. Or something that runs well enough and is just somehow dirt cheap. It's like, it really doesn't matter if your car is a salvage title if it's going to be a race car at all. <laughs> Correct, yeah. And then you don't have to worry about bushings or like bad ball joints and control arms because when you're building a car for the track anyways, you replace those parts. Yep. So as long as that motor and trans are good and like it's not rusty, it's worth like jumping into it. Yeah, 100%. Um, yeah. So any other uh, notable cars you, you've owned or have Um. So since that ZHP... Uh, so I sold the Chevy Colorado because my parents got a new vehicle and they handed me down their 11-year-old BMW X6 with an N55. So we talked about it earlier. Um, it had a lot of oil leaks, most which I fixed, but the oil filter housing gasket I didn't get around to when they handed it to me. Mm. And, uh, because of that, enough oil dripped onto the accessory belt and it fell off the pulley and got kind of caught up in the wiring harness at the front of the motor. Mm. So that one is now dead because it needs a wiring harness that goes to all the cam sensors and the oil pressure sensors and things like that. Cause it, and it won't start. Uh, once that happened, I had to find another vehicle. So now I'm in a Jeep Grand Cherokee Eco Diesel, which is the same thing that you have. All right. <laughs> yep. And I love mine. <laughs> yeah. Just so my Jeep has been great. It's older than yours by like four years, but it only has now 50,000 miles. I just crossed it going back to Michigan. Okay. Um, but it has the first breakage, which is the driver's seatbelt doesn't retract anymore. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. That's kind of surprising. Yeah. It's, you know. Yeah, it's a big safety issue, so I'm bringing it in tomorrow to have the dealership order the right parts and fix it. Yeah, that's good to know. Or a little something to look out for. Was there any indication that it was going to break before it happened? No, but I did look online, and this is like a fairly common problem. So what happens is like there's a trim piece where the seatbelt comes out of the B pillar, mm -hmm. and that piece likes to crack, and when it cracks, it just pinches onto the seatbelt. So it doesn't let it retract in or out. Yeah. Um, so what I've been doing is, like, I have this plastic trim tool that I, like, pry that piece of plastic up, and I let it retract. And that works, but when you're driving and you move around, it does lose its slack. So it is pretty dangerous to drive that thing around. Yeah. You do not want that to happen in an accident. <laughs> no. Yeah. I would go straight into the steering wheel. Yeah. Or the airbag. Yeah. Which I guess wouldn't be the worst thing in the world to hit the airbag, but yeah, steering wheel. It would still hurt a lot more than it should, because I would be moving a lot more forwards than normal. Right. Cool. So, let's get into uh, your career, if you don't mind. Um, uh, sure. 
what did you uh let's start with like with like what you went to school for why you chose it and uh kind of continue on from there um so i went to school for biomedical engineering um that's because i was also a pre-med minor because my parents wanted me to be a doctor Hmm. didn't use it for anything at all um and i ended up working at mishimoto as a project manager Hmm. that's neat how did you like why did they hire you considering you were a pre-med biomedical engineer (laughs) uh i in that in that video interview i kind of pitched that i really wanted to make a difference in the automotive world and i'm really passionate about cars and i think that really helped a lot plus i didn't have like a bad gpa or anything from a really hard engineering major so I was hoping that was going to prove to them, like, yeah, this kid's pretty competent, and even though he doesn't have any formal training, he could probably pick this stuff up pretty easily. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, biomedical engineering is probably a pretty difficult major. (laughs) Most engineering, if not all engineering degrees are, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's for sure. So, like, going from that to just managing projects and keeping track of timelines and workflows, was pretty easy yeah (laughs) yeah and i think you know people definitely recognize that passion generally will take you further within an industry than just going to school for the degree because you know because you know for whatever reason other than being passionate about it yeah there were definitely projects where i was working on where Like, I didn't want to compromise because the project budget was this, and then just skimp on certain features for certain, like, transmission coolers or radiators. And instead, we kind of just try to push forward and try to negotiate with suppliers to figure out how to make everything within budget and then still have the right performance that, like, a car guy would actually want out of this thing. Yeah. What uh, city was that at Mishimoto? What was that? I missed that. Uh, what city was it based out of? Uh, the job at Mishimoto? Oh. Newcastle, Delaware. Okay. So you're the reason why Miss, Mitch, Mish, <laughs> God, I can't say it. You're the reason why Mishimoto's reputation went so, so much better than it used to be, right? Yeah, I wish. <laughs> yeah. I feel like people definitely didn't respect it, you know, a while back, but um, they're used when they first started they were just literally like a uh, like an ebay reseller mm. where they would talk to all these uh, like manufacturers in china be like hey we'll buy all these civic radiators we're just you're just gonna have to tag them mishimoto and then we'll just resell them on <laughs> ebay and they did no engineering themselves and they just kind of bought and resold parts wow i did not know that <laughs> yeah and then at some point, I think when I was there, it was like they had been already doing this for like maybe four years or so. Um, they hired engineers and they start designing their own products to make sure that they fit a little bit better. Hmm. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I'm glad they became yeah. like a real development company instead of just reselling normal parts. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> definitely more development. Like there's a lot more test fitting that involved that was involved. They had engineers that would do CAD drawings to make sure that this radiator radiator would fit. And we'd still get like the random radiator from our supplier that they'd be like, hey, this is for like, for example, one of my projects was the GMT 800 series uh, truck radiator. And one of our suppliers came to us and said, hey, can you just resell this one? We This is the vehicles that fit. And we test fit it and we were like, yeah, no, no way. This doesn't fit at all. <laughs> so, and then we took that design and we redid some of the end tanks to make sure it fit. And then we threw in some really, really good like in end tank transmission and oil coolers. So this is like, in my opinion, one of the best aluminum radiators you can get for that GMT 800 and 900 series trucks. Hmm. It is expensive, but it also works really well. Nice. Yeah, so that's one of like my baby projects that I really like liked and I didn't want to compromise and just like throw it out and be like, hey, Mishimoto just won't make one of these radiators. Yeah. 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 Things actually happen when people care about what they're working on. You know, I've had several jobs where it just felt like people were just phoning it in and I'm the only one trying to be like, hey, do we actually hopefully maybe want to work on an improvement <laughs> and uh yeah it didn't work out <laughs> um but it is what it is um different jobs for different people different passions take you different places i guess yep exactly i'm, I'm pretty thankful for that job like because it kind of gave me a lot of exposure to this aftermarket automotive industry and how this works so when you're talking to people at the track and they're also in that car industry the aftermarket side of things like you know how to talk the talk with them yeah so what did you do after mishimoto um i actually moved to work for a parts distribution company um in new jersey as a product manager and they mainly dealt with like heavy duty truck and trailer parts so you're thinking dump trucks semi trucks 18 wheelers things like that hmm. nice yeah and that to me was a lot more boring because it was oh. still automotive so i understood the parts but it wasn't as exciting as like performance aftermarket to me mm -hmm. and then that industry also it felt like you took a step back 20 years because the amount of like information available to the public and the way they're tracking vehicles mm. in the heavy duty industry was like non-existent. Right. So I couldn't figure out how many like Peterbilt 389s were on the road with like this spring configuration because the way these truckers would off like what the way these owner operators or these companies would uh, option out their vehicles were so specific that nothing was tracked so it was really really difficult to actually figure out how to order things properly hmm. yeah, so that tough sense. job a lot of it was just guess and then hope that product stuck yeah that sounds practically impossible it's like you're just you have no idea what the data would tell you if you had the data you could at least like know if this product is even going to be used or useful to people but you're kind of just shooting in the dark. Yep. Hmm. So I didn't like it that much, and I wanted to figure out, like, 
other methods of like how to do product research to make sure your products are successful. Mm -hmm. And that's when I decided I'm just going to go back to school and get like a proper business education, learn about market research and things like that. Nice. And that's kind of how it brought me to Michigan and Michigan State. Nice. You're getting your MBA. Yep. MBA. So I'm in my second year right now. I have my full-time job lined up at the end of it. So I'm just cruising through the next five months. Nice. Are you, uh, where, do you know where you're going to be stationed first? I do not. They're going to be telling me by April 28th is what that offer letter said. Okay. I hope it's here so we can hang out in person. That would be cool. That's for sure. And then I can take advantage of TMP. <laughs> I'll tell Tony you said that. <laughs> yeah. Hey, he could pay me. So I'll work from like five o'clock to seven o'clock after hours doing like, like those jobs that nobody else wants. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I'll, just get my, I'll get my lift to him that way. He'd probably be open to it, honestly. I mean, do you feel like there's a, um, do you feel like there's, do you feel like you're pretty fast at uh, working on cars? Oh, so before I worked at Mishimoto, I spent three, three months at a Porsche shop. Like, it was like an independent mechanic. So I worked on Porsches. Oh. Did the basic oil change, brakes, suspension work, t wheels and tires, things like that. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. What, how old were you? Or when was this? This was like right out, right out of college before I found my job at Mishimoto. Oh, how long were you there for? Three months. Okay. Did so you... I know how to work. I know how to work at a shop. I was, I was doing like decent time on brakes and like suspension work and things like that. Nice. Yeah. Must be why you're so much faster than me when we change the brakes on my car. <laughs> I, I guess. Really? But I also know how to do brakes. Like I've done so many like brake pad changes on my E36. Yeah. I honestly haven't done that many brake changes for how much I've tracked and autocrossed my cars because, you know, I had two Miatas and they weigh nothing, so you don't really go through pads that fast. And then I guess I just sold my other cars before I needed to replace them. Uh, yeah. But you also, like, probably got better brake pads than I did. Like, the PFCs I have on there now, like, I've... I prob if I had my cheaper power stops on there, I probably would be doing another like brake pad change. But with the PFCs, they're wearing like iron, and then I don't. And the rotors are doing good too. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. But yeah, I was running those power stop pads, and uh, like literally, like I'd have to change them mid mid uh, track season just because they wore so quickly. Yeah, I was amazed because I use I use those power stop track day pads, and like. You know, I took it to, you could say like, oh, well, you took it to, you know, you took your BRZ with the with the uh, track pads to every single track day. But it's like it only went out like two or three sessions every track day for the most part. Um, and it only lasted like five track days. <laughs> so I was amazed yeah. that they were dead. And I was like, wow, like. They're super cheap. That's the only benefit to them. Yeah. But yeah, they they wear so quickly. Right. And it's like they performed well while they were, you know, still existing. <laughs> yep, yep, I agree. My E46, I've tracked that car a lot. And I've only used one. I've only replaced the pads once. And I've tracked it more after replacing them. 
That being said, they are an endurance pad. Uh, I think they're like the PS31s or something. Um, but, um, wait, let me actually look up what they are. Um, yeah, well, I'm running like the PFC 11s or 12s, whatever they are. So they're the sprint compound. And even they are still doing really well on mine. Um, what are mine? PFC 332. So, yeah, I'm pretty sure they're an endurance pad, right? Um, yeah, because the, the ones you're talking about, I think, are just like the successors to the PFC 08s that everybody talks about. Yeah. And it's like they came with a lot of pad on the actual, you know, I don't know what you'd call it, backing plate, whatever. But that influenced me. After running out of track day pad with the BRZ, I decided to try some G-Lock pads because everybody loves G-Lock, <laughs> from what I hear. And I wanted to switch to an endurance pad, so I got some G-Lock endurance pads. I have yet to install them or try them, but I probably should have waited because there was no real reason to get them. Because um, in the meantime, I just put on some Duralast pads from AutoZone <laughs> for super, super cheap. Um, but yeah, anyway, enough about that. Can we talk about your other BRZ that you own? Sure, why not? <laughs> the one you found for me? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just curious. So I asked the question to the Michigan Ice Racing Association uh, today, like, what are our chances of getting out on the lake in ice racing? And they thought it was pretty low for the first couple of events just because it's been so warm. Mm. But I know for a fact that you're trying to go ice racing in your BRZ. Right. This winter. Yeah. Um it's so amazing how like the stars kind of aligned with that BRZ because first of all you found it and then second of all you were 20 minutes away and I also have family that I could visit in Lansing um and I knew I was I was going to use this car as a winter car um as a 2015 BRZ I don't know if it's a premium I think it's a premium um it doesn't have heated seats, which is fine, but um, would would be nice for a winter car. And since I knew I was going to use it for the winter as a winter vehicle, I was looking at snow tires because I wanted to try ice racing and I wanted to try snow tires. And I was really close to getting like some kind of more budget snow tires, um, and I was going to buy them from Parts Daddy Will, <laughs> but. Uh, in Kalamazoo, there were, like, a brand new set of Michelin X-Ice tires, which are kind of, like, in the same tier as Blizzax, basically. And they were, like, $300 for, the for like, a brand new set because this, um, this girl who uh, had bought them for her Subaru put them on and got in an accident, like, a week or two after putting them on. <laughs> <laughs> so she bought a different car. They weren't going to fit that car. And so now I have $300 brand new Michelin X-Ice tires. 
But yeah, so it really worked out because I just picked up the tires on the way to meet you to pick up the car, and you know, <laughs> the guy said it had you know a bad head gasket, and I and I know it does, but I didn't. He didn't tell me like the whole situation of like how do you know, other than how do you know it has a bad head gasket. His response was, well, the you know the shop like it started overheating, and the shop told me it does. So I was like, oh, okay. So, and then you told me when I got went to pick it up, <laughs> you were like, the guy said it wouldn't overheat unless you drive it for like four hours or more at a time. <laughs> and it's like, that's not a common thing for me or most people. So I'm kind of amazed that, you know, that uh, he didn't, he like neglected to add that detail. But whatever. Um, so it has some tiny leak. It's been great. It's been tuned with the like OFT like tablet tuner thing. Um, I'm pretty sure it runs a lot better on 93 octane than 91 because you can't always find 93 around here. Um, and it clearly seems to run a lot smoother with 93. But uh, I'm actually, I'm thinking about actually trying E85 on it because I just want to see. It's nice to have more horsepower, right? So, but this is like a pretty like well built, I guess, car. Yeah, because it has full headers, cat like cats, no cats, right? Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure it does not have a resonator because <laughs> that's like my biggest biggest complaint. Like it has nice parts, like Bilstein shocks. I assume they're Eibach springs. I should probably take a closer look. So it's lowered. It's got wheel spacers. I think they're like 20 millimeter wheel spacers all around. Um, he gave me like extra. Um, he gave me like a. <laughs> I remember arms. Yeah. What what were they? Can were they? Wait. What did you say? They're camber arms. Are they? I. <laughs> it's funny. I didn't even open the box. I just like took them and they they're sitting and I haven't even looked at them. I know it's some kind of aftermarket adjustment for the rear suspension. Um. I, but uh, yeah, it's pretty nice to just get camber arms apparently, uh, just for free. Uh, unequal length. Uh, headers, uh, Tomei exhaust, but my big, <laughs> so it's like it has all these nice parts on it, tastefully modded, nothing like ridiculous, and um, it's been reliable for me. I, I had some camshaft codes, but it might have been related to the 91 octane I was putting in, um, maybe, or, you know, on these cars, it has 200 thousand miles on it right <laughs> and most subaru brz engines don't last you know much longer than a hundred thousand miles because from what i hear from experienced mechanics it's mostly just because the owners are not very diligent about oil changes but when the camshafts just go bad after a hundred thousand miles or maybe it's a mixable i don't know um everything has like no rust, right? Well, it, it's ha it has some rust. You know, it doesn't have any rust on the body, which is nice. But, like, the subframe pieces and suspension parts, there's a little bit of rust. But it's not, like, 
It's not like going to create a hole anytime soon. Which is why I think you should, after you're done winter beatering this, just cage it, and that's your GLTC card. <laughs> it wouldn't be a bad idea. I mean, uh, I'm so torn about GLTC right now. I know I'm going to try it in the E46 first. But, but the RS is going to be faster no matter what than the E46. Is that true? Probably. Yeah, because you don't want to take a grinder to the E46 and put big wheels on, so... Yeah. The FRS is going to be faster. Well, I mean, I don't know as much as, like, you or Tony does about, like, you know, does is a fatter tire going to help me or not, right? And the biggest, like, question here with the E46 is, like, with how heavy it is, and you can't really get it much lighter, if at all, um, is basically it's heavy enough to run a 275 tire. Um, but would that even benefit me? Like, does it need that big of a tire? Would it actually be a benefit? Am I taking like a handicap by doing a 255 or a 245? Yes, because your car is like 3,000 pounds. Yeah. Of course you're going to replace your tire. <laughs> but it's, I don't know. Yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> well, yeah, and I don't want to cut the fenders. I actually looked up this forum post the other day of some guy asking if he could put a 275 tire stock. And some people are saying it actually could fit. But probably not with the suspension setup it has. And it would obviously... Wait, 275 on your E46? Yeah. 275 on an E46. If it was an M3... Yeah. <laughs> no, it wasn't. This was a stand on the forum post. Yeah, that guy's on crack. <laughs> you try to fit a 275 Hoosier on, because that's like a 295 in like uh, actual yeah, that's true. And they were talking about like a 275, like 30 or something. And it definitely was not. It was obviously a street tire they were talking about. So, yeah. But that's okay. I mean, I I, I would like, I need to find the cheapest way or like, it, it, it's essentially for me because I already have the car. It's the most reasonable way to check out the field and experience GLTC and figure out if I actually want to do it and build a car for it or modify the E46 for it. Um, you could do that mid-pack Larry in GLTC with <laughs> spec E46. Yeah. But I don't really want to compete for mid-pack. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Well, then you need a K-swapped S2000. Yeah, or a K-swapped BRZ. Yeah, or a K-swapped BRZ. But you gotta first do the. You gotta first cage the BRZ. Yeah, cage it. Probably better suspension, aero, weight reduction, new tires, new wheels. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good. It was a good buy for sure. The BRZ. Um, my main complaint though with it is just without a resonator. I'm assuming it's because it doesn't have a resonator. It is so drony. Like I can turn on the car 
And if I go back inside the house and go up to the second floor, I, I can, you can feel the car vibrating. It's that, like, loud. It's, like, it's too much. Like, <laughs> I drive around in that thing with Apple AirPods, noise-canceling AirPods. And on top of that, I put uh, some Bose non- over-ear non- noise-canceling um, on top of that. <laughs> Because it's so annoying, and I'd like to it, wasn't, it was definitely not that loud for me, but I also never drove like more than forty miles an hour in that thing, yeah, I mean it's you don't really know like with sound it's it's easy to like not notice like how loud the environment is that you're in um it's kind of something I learned about in one of my classes is like how your ear doesn't really have much capacity to comp- to repair itself. Like, whenever you have tinnitus from loud things, it's not always permanent damage, but it is technically a little bit of damage of, like, the hairs, the little tiny hairs in your, in your eardrum folding over and being stuck folded over. And then it either goes away by bending back upwards, or it... Um... <laughs> <laughs> or your mind just kind of gets used to it and starts blocking. Like you just your your mind compensates, or like you know just ignores that signal. Um, or you just have tinnitus for the rest of your life. So I try to protect my ears as much as I can, but you know, yeah. <laughs> and with the car like that, it's like man. I, I I really have to try to protect my ears, or just install a resonator, or replace the exhaust. I don't know. We'll see. Or make it a race car, and then once you have a helmet on, it's not so loud. True. Although I saw someone at one of our last track day events this year. You saw him too. The guy in the MR2. I think it was a K-swapped MR2. Last gen MR2. Um, it was ridiculously loud, and it was really fast. Um. But he he's wearing earplugs, which is super smart because he cares about his hearing. <laughs> uh, yeah. But yeah, we'll see. You know what happens. Um, I'd love to have some kind of noise canceling helmet or something, honestly. But I'm sure, it'd be really expensive. Well, I don't think you're the BRZ is that loud to the point that the helmet won't cancel out enough. Yeah, you're probably right. Like that that MR2 was deafening. Yeah. It really was. Yeah. But yeah, it's a goodbye. I do thank you again for finding it and, you know, making sure that it was in your possession before I took it. <laughs> um because otherwise I was like, I was really close to buying like a Mazda Speed 3 for somewhat cheap. Um, but it's impossible to find those cars without rust. And I like to avoid rust when I can. And if I can avoid it, I don't really like front wheel drive. So, anymore. There was a time and yeah. place, but no more for that for me. If I can help it. So yeah, um, I don't know. We've been talking for a decent amount now <laughs> on this podcast. We're probably gonna have to wrap this up 
right here this first episode of this podcast but we'll continue on in the uh in the next episode and continue the conversation so um hopefully we can do you know an episode at least every other week probably thursdays for now that might change it probably will change and um Hopefully we can uh, come up with some interesting things to say to people. Thank you very much for listening to the first ever Heel Toe Podcast presented by Ryan and Andrew from RevMatch Track Days. We do have a RevMatch Track Days Discord channel which we use to record the podcast. Feel free to request to join. We also have a Facebook channel, an Instagram, of course, as well as track day events that we are primarily promoting. So if you're interested in doing a track day, even if you're a very beginner have never been on track before, RevMatch Track Days has a spot for you. We have novice run groups, we have intermediate as well as advanced run groups, and we also have a semi-competitive time trial format in which you can enter to win a free track day. Check out our schedule at revmatchracing.org or on our Facebook and Instagram channels too. Thanks for listening and see you next time.